Well, one of the challenges of the Christian life is conforming our perspective to God's perspective. Okay, this really has a lot to do with Christian growth, but it is one of the challenges. God's perspective is the right perspective. You know, the the old saying, the wise man adjusts himself to the Bible, the foolish man adjusts the Bible to himself, or at least he tries to. Well, that can't really be done because that just is basically saying God doesn't know what he's talking about, and God definitely knows what he's talking about. He can't make a mistake. His perspective is the right one. In other words, what we need to do is we need to see as he does, because to see as he does is to see accurately, is to see the way it really is, to see reality. We're dealing a lot today with There's uh, gaming, there's videos, there's movies, there's all kinds of stuff. There's augmented reality, there's virtual reality or whatever they call all the different things you put on the, the headsets and the earphones and everything and you literally are captured by another world. That's not reality, okay? And let me say this, the more you do that, the more out of touch with reality you're going to become. You might say, do you have any experience in that? I don't need experience in that, it just makes sense. That's not reality. God wants us focused on reality. That's why it says in Romans 12, 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. You can't do better than God's will. And so when we allow God through the scriptures, through a surrendered spirit, when we allow him to have his way in our lives, our thinking will be adjusted, it'll be changed, and we will think as he does, and we will see that things go better when we do things God's way. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 1 is where we have been, and we're going to pick up in verse 15, kind of put it in the reverse a little bit. We covered this last week, but just in way of gaining momentum, Paul said, this is a faithful saying, 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This is Paul saying this to Timothy. How be it for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern, an example to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul said, God saved me to use me as an example to other people and what God can do by his grace. That is why God saved him. God did not save Paul just to keep him out of hell. As wonderful and awesome as that is, and if that's all there was to it, that's amazing. But it's more than that. He saves us for more than just keeping us out of hell. He wants to use us. Now you notice in verse 15, he said, of whom I am chief. Paul considered himself the chiefest of sinners because of his brutal persecution of the church of Jesus Christ before he was saved. You don't have to turn her, but in Acts chapter 8, it talks about Paul before he was Paul, before he was saved. 
And it says, and as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing, and that word doesn't mean the the ice stuff that we have had recently falling out of the sky. Hailing here means dragging, dragging. Hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Can you imagine that? You're in your house and, or maybe not even that, the door gets knocked down and in he comes with other people and they take you and they literally drag you out of your house and commit you to prison. Why? Because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That's why. The only reason. Same idea in Acts chapter 9, it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. Breathing out threatenings and slaughter. The word slaughter means murder. Murder. Folks, this guy, you know, we read it. Do we ever stop to think about what these words mean? This man was committed to having Christians murdered. That's what drove him. That was why he got up in the morning. It's what his life was about. And yet on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus Christ. When he believed in Christ the Savior, the Lord saved him and forgave him. The grace that saved Paul is also the grace that empowered him to do the will of God after he was saved. Grace doesn't stop when we get saved. Grace in our lives begins when we get saved. We start growing in grace, learning about it, learning how wonderful it is, tapping into the power of God in our Christian lives. This is so important to understand. Verse 17, 1 Timothy 1, 17. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He is the only one who is eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. It only makes sense to bring glory to him. Now we pick up in verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest war a good warfare. The first thing we see here this morning in our text is this. Paul gave Timothy a mandate. The prophecies that went before on Timothy were, I believe, Truths that were given to Paul about Timothy and the ministry he would have. Now, we're not sure on this, but I believe that's what it is. Evidently, there are scriptures that'll tie in with this. I'll show you in just a minute. Evidently, Timothy received some spiritual gift at his ordination. That's not necessarily the norm or the order. You know, if you're going into the ministry, don't figure, I can't wait to get ordained because I'm going to receive some spiritual gift like Timothy did. Not necessarily. But this is the story. This is the history of what happened to him. Hold your place here just for a moment. Turn over to chapter four. Something happened at his ordination into the ministry. First Timothy chapter four and verse 14, and I think this is what Paul's getting at in chapter 1. He says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. The leadership in the church, when he was ordained, something was given to him at that point. God imparted to him some spiritual gift. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, a couple pages over, 
in verse 6. It says this, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. So evidently, Paul was there at his ordination, and this was given him at that point. Now, let's go back to verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. And I want you to see, we start getting really into the meat or the the heart and soul of this passage here. In verse 18, again, it says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee. In other words, according to what you know about, that you learned about and you received at your ordination, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. So we saw our first point, Paul gave Timothy a mandate. I didn't say what it was, because that's what we're coming to now. Why did the Lord give him, Timothy, this ability at his ordination? Well, that leads us to our second point. It is the mandate. And what is the mandate? He was to war a good warfare. He was to war a good warfare. This was the mandate. The word warfare means military service, just like it does today. He was to be a good soldier. And we see that also in the scripture. In just a moment, I'll show you that in another passage. This does not even register, though, with most Christians today. Let me ask you this, friend. These scriptures are in here for a reason. Are you involved in the war? Are you being a good soldier? Are you willing to be on the front lines? Are you willing to take it to the enemy? Are you willing to stand and be shot at? Paul says, Timothy, I have a charge for you. I have a mandate for you. And the mandate is this. You need to war a good warfare. You need to be a good soldier. You need to have the courage to stand up. Again, this does not register with most Christians today. It's like, okay, okay, this is where I tune out because I'm not interested in this. See, folks, we are so caught up in the temporal today and not caught up in the eternal. I expect that mindset from lost people, but we should not expect it from those of us who are saved by the grace of God, who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We should be living for that which is eternal in value, not for that which is temporal. Let me ask you this today. How far are we away from God's plans for our lives? I can't answer that for you, and you can't answer that for me. But am I engaged Am I serious about living for Christ, proclaiming the gospel, doing what I can for the cause of Christ? Am I serious about that? Or am I just a moral person? Let me tell you this, folks. Lost people can be moral people, okay? God wants more of us as his children than to just be moral people. He wants us to be fruitful believers. He wants us to be good soldiers. We have a mandate. You might say, well, this is written to Timothy. Timothy was a pastor. Let me ask you a question. Was Timothy always a pastor? No. No one is always a pastor. No one is born a pastor. Sometimes parents have hopes and dreams for their children. I came along. My mom wanted me to be a priest. She was Roman Catholic. God has a sense of humor. I was named after a priest, Thomas. 
Father Tom, that's who he was. By the way, he left the priesthood and got married and had a family. I was going to add something on there, but I won't. Good for him. Good for him. Warring a good warfare. Now think about that term. War a good warfare. Warring a good warfare paints a picture of difficulty, conflict, sacrifice, possible hardship. Does it not? Have you ever known anybody who's gone into the military and gone into battle and said it was a piece of cake? It was more fun than anything I've ever experienced. It was a blast. I recommend it for everyone. No, folks, listen. It's difficult to be in war. Nevertheless, this idea of a picture of difficulty, conflict, sacrifice, and possible hardship, it's true. And this is the life, by the way, of true discipleship. If you looked what Jesus taught his disciples on how life was going to be for them, he didn't say, now that you're saved... You're going to have the nicest cars, the nicest home, all kinds of money in the bank. Everything's going to be perfect. You're going to have a great family. Everybody at work's going to love you. Everybody in your neighborhood's going to love you. Everybody you meet's going to love you. No, folks, that's not it. Not if we are going to live our lives for Christ. It says in 2 Timothy 3, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That wasn't just for Paul's day. It's also for our day. And by the way, the church of Jesus Christ in other places, can I tell you this? In the last 50 years, more Christians have been persecuted in the world than any other people group. More suffering, more killing. Very serious. That's why Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3, Therefore, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I believe this. I believe that persecution on believers in our country is going to get ratcheted up in the future. Whether we escape more and more of it through the rapture, that's possible. But God made no promises that we are not going to face persecution before the rapture. Made no promises on that. All he told us, he said, we will escape the tribulation but we will not escape tribulation. He never promised that. The time of the tribulation, the seven-year period, Jacob's trouble, we will escape that as the church, but we will not necessarily escape trouble. But see, that's from the perspective of living for Christ. Those who live for Christ should be willing. Well, those who live for Christ are willing to pay the price. Every Christian should be willing. No, Paul said, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. You know, I can remember when my brother Larry, when he left to go into the Navy, I can remember them coming by and picking you up. You remember that, Larry? He took basically nothing with him. Basically nothing. That's the thing that stuck out in my mind when I, uh, wait, he doesn't have anything. Everything he needed would be provided by the Navy. Guess what, folks? Those of us who are in God's forces, and we are, if you're saved, you are a soldier. 
He says, I will provide everything you need. Don't worry about the temporal. Be concerned about the eternal. This is calibrating our minds to the will of God. This is the way we need to be thinking. Hold your place here and look with me over to Ephesians chapter 6. God is not asking Christians for hand-to-hand combat over our Christian beliefs. God is asking Christians to be proclaimers of the truth and livers of the truth, those who live out the truth of God. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the strategies of the devil. This is a war. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So what do we see here? Getting back to to, uh, 1 Timothy. We see, number one, Paul gave Timothy a mandate, but secondly, the mandate is defined. He was to war a good warfare. Now that leads us to our third point, and it is this. The plan of the enemy is clear. Listen, folks, the plan of the enemy is not political. People say, jump, they, you know, they think, well, the answer to America's problems is politics. No, it isn't. It isn't. You know, years ago, I used to say, well, how, how can people be so um, turned off by politics. I mean, you've got people, I know there's the, those on the left are people, the liberal-minded people, but then there are people who are, you know, they're wanting to do what's right and to do, to do good for the country and all that. And by the way, there are still people who want to do that. So let me mention that. But can I tell you this, folks? When you look at Congress, it is pathetic. Our country is pathetic. The leadership in our country is pathetic. Whether it's Democrats or whether it's Republicans, might say, well, we've got to compromise. You never compromise biblical morality or standards. Never do you do that. The moment you do, you have lost. And they say, well, we've got a majority. We've got this and we've got that. Okay, do something then. Do something then. That is what turns people off. I get it now, by the way. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be engaged. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I get it now. I understand why people say, you know what? Politicians make me sick to the stomach. It's because nothing ever gets done. That's why. I get it. But we don't give up. By the way, more about that next week. Because that's right in the text. Don't you love the Word of God? Yeah, it's all covered. It's all covered. That's why we go verse by verse in our church. Now we come to the plan of the enemy, and the plan of the enemy is clear. While we know that Satan wants to be God, ultimately, that's the ultimate thing Satan wants. He made that clear. He said it eons ago, okay? I will be like the Most High. That's what he wants. We also know, though, from a practical perspective, that he wants to keep people from hearing and understanding the gospel of salvation. He does not want people to hear the truth. Now listen, you might say, well, how, really, how big of a deal is that? Let me show you in our text how big of a deal that is. We're in, what are we? We're in verse 18. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. You notice, remember what it said? 
This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Why did Jesus come? How important is this? This is the whole reason Jesus came to this planet was for the salvation of man. This is why he came. Folks, you cannot make this a bigger deal than it is, okay? And to make it a big deal is not to hobby horse it, okay? Well, that's all you ever talk about. It's all you ever do. You get the gospel. Now, number one, that's not all our church ever does. But, but still, yeah, we give the gospel. We give it every service. We do it for a reason. Every event we have, we give the gospel. Why do we do that? Because there are lost people there who need to be saved. Listen, every lost person is the reason Jesus entered time and space and came to this planet. The whole reason he came to this planet is because man cannot save himself. Our salvation is the whole reason Jesus came into the world. He came, you notice it in verse 15, to save sinners. To save sinners. That's why he came into the world. The scriptures could not be more plain on that. Now, hold your place. Go with me over to Romans chapter 10. And we'll see, and we're going to look at the strategy of Satan in Romans 10. You may have never thought about this passage this way. Actually, the strategy is not there, but the opposite of what is written is the strategy of Satan. Romans chapter 10 and verse 14, Paul has been talking about getting the gospel to the Jewish people, to the world, but to the Jewish people in particular in this portion of Romans and it says in Romans 10, 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Good questions. Verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Now you go back to verse 14 and look at it in reverse. You need somebody who will share the message. That's the preacher, not necessarily this preacher. I mean, I have the responsibility, but anybody who is sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel is, is, when you proclaim the gospel, you're preaching the gospel. That's the preacher. So you notice you have to have somebody willing to share it. Do you see it? That's the preacher. You have to be willing to share it because if we don't share it, back it up a little bit more, they'll never hear it. If they don't hear it, they can't do what? Believe. So they have to have somebody willing to share it so they can hear it so that they can believe it. So Satan says, okay, I know exactly what I'll do. I want as many people as possible to end up in hell. So I'll go after the Christian and I'll get him to not preach it, to not share it. That way people will never hear it. That way people will never believe it. And that way they'll suffer forever in hell. That's his plan on a practical plane. Now, folks, that's when you think about it. Jesus came to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. And Satan says, yep. And you know what? I'm going to try to shut the mouths of Christians so those lost people Jesus came to save will never hear it. That way they'll never believe it. And that way they'll stay lost. This is powerful. This message of the gospel is so incredibly important. 
Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, it says, God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me show you this this morning. I know most of you here have seen this before. Maybe you haven't. This hand representing you and me, this representing our sin. We're all sinners. All of us are sinners. God loves us. He hates our sin, but he loves us. The Bible says our sin separates us from God. You cannot get to heaven. Sin is in the way. Your sin has to be gone for you to go to heaven. God says this, the wages of sin is death. See, heaven's a perfect place. For you to go there, you have to be sinless. We're not. We're sinners. Therefore, disqualified. By the way, that's one reason why your good works can't get you to heaven. Because good works don't take away sin. It has to be gone. If we die with our sin, we'll be lost forever in hell. God says, I love you so much. I'm going to send my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's you and me. Perfect son of God. He went to the cross. He took our sin upon himself and he made the payment. So we don't have to make the payment. Jesus paid for all of our sins so we don't have to. He was buried, he came back from the dead, and he says, if you believe that he made that payment for your sin, the moment you do, you believe that, you have faith in him that he did it for you, he'll give you everlasting life as a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. Good works do not pay for sin. What does the Bible say? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of works. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, all of your sin has been taken away. You have been forgiven, okay? The payment Jesus made is good on your behalf. He takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness. He gives you everlasting life. And immediately when you believe, he gives you a home in heaven. That's the good news of the gospel. You can know you're going to heaven because it doesn't depend on you. If it depends on you, you could never know you're going to heaven because you'd never know when you did enough to qualify. The truth is we're disqualified. We can never qualify in ourselves. That's why Jesus came to die, to make the payment. God commended, displayed his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if you haven't trusted Christ the Savior, trust him as your Savior right now. You might say, is it that easy? It's that easy. He did all the work. He did the hard part. All he's asking you to do is believe, trust in him that he made the payment for you, and he'll give you everlasting life. See, folks, if people never hear the gospel then they can never be saved. What I just did was proclaim the gospel. I preached the gospel to where people can hear it. If they can hear it, they can believe it. If they can believe it, they can be saved. Can you think of anything else you can do as a human being more important than that? I can't. Again, if people never hear the gospel, they'll never be saved. Now, Satan knows that. And so he uses several tactics to keep us from sharing it. One of them that he does is this. He tells us lies that make us afraid. He tells us lies that make us afraid. Why do most Christians 
not share the gospel. You might say, well, I don't think I know enough. No, that's not the reason. That's not the reason. It's fear. Fear is the reason. It may be the fear of not knowing enough, but listen, if you come to this church, and especially you come tonight, you'll know more than most people know. Matter of fact, you'll know more than most preachers know because they don't have it right. They don't have it right. But Satan tries to keep us from sharing by telling us lies that make us afraid. You know what I think the biggest lie he tells Christians to keep them from witnessing is? They'll reject you. They'll reject you. You're afraid of rejection. We've all got some of us that in us. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid somebody's going to blow up. We're afraid somebody's going to punch us out. We're afraid. I mean, some of these things are probably ridiculous. I used to say they're ridiculous. Now I say probably ridiculous. Listen, folks, asylums used to be somewhere people went. Now we live in an asylum. Now you have to go someplace of your own to get away from them. But here's the point. He tells us, you can't do it. In other words, you'll fail. You're going to fail if you try to share the gospel. People are going to reject you. And yeah, there is the one. They're going to ask you a question you don't know the answer to. Come tonight. I'm going to cover that. That's an easy one, by the way. That's an easy one to deal with. It really is. Remember this. The power of the gospel or the power is not in you to get somebody saved. It's in the message. If they reject the message, that's not rejecting you. It's rejecting the message. But you know what? We don't think that way. Why don't we think that way? Because Satan is telling us lies. That's why. So he works by telling us lies that make us afraid. He works by getting us to confuse the message and even pervert it. Putting works into the gospel. Well, you need to believe in Jesus and also commit your life. Promise you're going to serve him. You need to forsake all your sin. You need to turn from all your sin. I just covered that recently, folks. You can't do it. Don't tell them that. The Bible doesn't say it. People use terminology that makes no sense, and it only confuses the lost. So many people, and I know they're well-meaning, but again, get the point. Satan is trying to mess up the message so people don't hear the message, so people don't believe the message, so people stay lost. You say to a little child, Hi, little Billy, do you want to be saved? Yes, I want to be saved. Well, what you need to do, Billy, is you need to ask Jesus into your heart. Now, you know, there's a door on your heart, Billy. Lie. There's a door on your heart, but the handle's only on the inside. Jesus is knocking on your heart, but he's not going to open the door. He's asking you to open the door. Okay? Why, Why people say that? Where'd they get it? It's nowhere in the Bible. What about Revelation 3.20? It's talking to Christians there. These are, these are saved people. The church of Laodicea, they were believers. It's not talking about the door to your heart. If anything, it's talking about the door to their church. Be careful what you say. Why not just go with the terminology in Scripture? That's the thing to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. You know what? You can lead a person to Christ on John 3.16. It's all there. It's all there. If you know it well, it's all there. So he works by getting us to confuse the message and even pervert it, uh, make it a false gospel that doesn't save. 
Another thing he does, he does it by ruining the lives and testimony of God's children. He does this usually by slowly drawing us away from the Lord. He gets us to drift. Satan gets us to drift. We start missing church. We start missing devotions. We start cooling off. And yet we say, well, you know, I'll I'll get back to it. I'll get back to it. I'm busy right now. I'll get back to it. Listen, you ought to be scared to death as a Christian to drift. Destruction is on the horizon and Satan is pulling you away. Never choose the temporal over the eternal. Never. Always go with that which is of eternal value. Make your choices based on that. He wants to ruin your life and testimony. He wants to ruin my life and testimony. That's why there's so many temptations to get us to fail, to fall. That way we say, you know what? There's no use. I'm a failure. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'll just be quiet. Go live my own life. And Satan's going, ha, 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 ha. I got him or her. Another way it works is by getting us to spend our lives on the temporal and not on the eternal. Not good, folks. See, this is all a contradiction to the purpose for why Christ came, which was to save sinners, the commission Christ gave, which was to preach the gospel and make disciples, the supreme importance of what it brings to people, eternal salvation, And the ultimate end, which is bringing glory to God. That's the ultimate end of everything. I can't think of anything that brings glory to God more than winning a person to Christ. It glorifies what Christ did on the cross. It glorifies the power of the gospel. It glorifies God. It shows us what God can do through sinners saved by grace, such as us. Let's go back to 1 Timothy. It says in verse 19, it says, Holding faith in a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning the faith, have made shipwreck. Now, holding faith. Now, some people say, well, that means holding the faith. That means standing firm with the word of God in your hand. No, actually, that is not what it is. There's no article there. Not only in the English, it's not in the Greek either. Holding faith has the idea of to keep on staying firm on believing or trusting in the Lord with a good conscience. Now, I'm not talking about for salvation. I'm talking about walking by faith, looking to the Lord, believing him, trusting him in every situation in life, staying going, staying on track, refusing to drift, refusing to fall away. There are some people in the New Testament are prime examples of people who had lived for Christ, such as Demas in 2 Timothy 4, and yet he fell away. He knew what it was to serve the Lord, but he started drifting. By the way, that's why church is so important. By the way, that's why family camp is so important. I know not everybody can come, but if you can, you ought to be there. We don't do it for us. We do it for your benefit, for everyone's benefit. Holding faith, to keep on believing or trusting in the Lord with a good conscience. This speaks of being committed to God's will and being sensitive to not straying away from the Lord. One of the greatest fears I have in my Christian life is drifting, straying. Hebrews gives several warnings. Folks, again, never choose the temporal over the eternal. The conscience, see, tells us 
to do right, but it doesn't tell us specifically what is right. That is where the scriptures come in. And we are accountable to the Lord for how we respond to his word. You notice it says, holding faith in a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. What happens? Instead of staying believing, trusting in the Lord, they quit believing what God says, and as a result, they suffer shipwreck. I know lots of Christians who have suffered shipwreck. This is the result of every believer who strays from the truth. This is the result of not being in the Word of God and obeying it, because if we are in the Word and we obey it, it will strengthen our faith, and it'll make it easier for us to keep believing, in other words, trusting the Lord, walking by faith, and it'll make it easier for us to stay close to Him, and you become more sensitive Listen, I can tell when things are not right in my life. I can tell. I'm not saying I'm involved in some heinous sin or or whatever. I can just tell, okay? It's like, no, you know what? I'm not spiritually in tune the way I need to be. I I need to recalibrate here. And the only way you can do that is by spending time with the Lord. And then when you know things are right, then you go on from there and do what you need to do, but keeping him in view through the pages of Scripture. Verse 20 gives us an example of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus is mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 2 along with somebody else named Philetus. Okay. Were they believers? I don't know if they were. I hope that they were. I'm not doubting that they were believers. I know this, they strayed, they got away from things, and they came up with, we know from 2 Timothy, they, they, uh, Hymenaeus was into, he started denying that there was a literal resurrection, physical resurrection from the dead, either Jesus' resurrection or something, or that there was no resurrection or there was no prophetic resurrection, such as the rapture. We don't know the details of it, but we know this. He got off doctrinally, and you know what? He wouldn't change his position. Therefore, Paul, what did he do? He said, you guys need to leave the church. You're into false doctrine. You won't change, therefore you need to leave. You're no longer like-minded with us. So in closing, let me ask this, and this is for all of us. What are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your life? What are you living your life for? You want to know what that is. It's not hard to find out. What are you doing with your time? Time is life. What are your priorities? What are you giving your life to? Again, time is life. How we use our time is how we use our lives. And there's only one trip through that. One last verse, Psalm 90, verse 12. Are we good soldiers, right? Psalm 90, verse 12. What a, this is one of my favorite verses. Might be yours too. I don't highlight every verse that I come to in the Bible, but this is one I've highlighted in my Bible. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto making money? No. Wisdom. Wisdom. See, wisdom is seeing and doing God's will. Wisdom is seeing and doing God's will. You become a wise person when you see and you do the will of God. And that just feeds itself. 
by the way. God will change our values over time if we will see God's will through the pages of Scripture and do God's will, we will become wise. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.